Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Isaac. I'm CJ. And sorry, again, we have not established communication (laughs) guidelines, but Brian could not join us because Pink Eye is currently trying to cancel him. I I was going to make a cancellation joke as well, that his power of sight, just like the Apostle Paul, had been canceled. Oh my goodness. But by an infectious disease instead of by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. (laughs) So it's it's a skeleton crew today. We'll see how it goes. First ever um, Isaac and CJ duo pod, so... I have a feeling this is going to be what the fans are clamoring for going forward. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, um, CJ, what brings us here today to pod on this 17th day of June? Well, as listeners may know, something big just happened in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so uh, we're going to get into that a little bit today, even though neither of us are Southern Baptist because... You know, but what church drama? That's kind of our corner, right? <laughs> it is exclusively our corner. And uh, again, it's very popular. It is important to establish at the beginning that none of that neither one of us are Southern Baptist. And actually, as we prep for this, I was trying to think if I had a single Southern Baptist friend. And the answer is no. I uh, I don't have anyone oh, wow. in my life that is Southern Baptist. <laughs> wow. Well, I um I I do have Southern Baptist well, family members in my life. I don't know that I have a ton of friends who would go to SBC churches anymore, although who knows. But I mean, I did not grow up Southern Baptist, but my mom did. Lots of our family is still Southern Baptist. And so, I mean, the drama is interesting to me because I have young cousins who are growing up in this denomination right now who you know I see on a fairly regular basis and I'm interested in what's going on in like their spiritual world. Plus, yeah. I don't know, we both live in the South and I feel like the Southern Baptist Convention, when it makes moves, it affects everyone's lives if you're like in religion at all. I agree. And uh, I'm pretty sure it's the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, 14 million adherents. Worth pointing out that its existence is, of course, coming out of slavery. Uh, Southern Baptist Convention broke off from the larger Baptist family because it didn't support abolition. Shocker. Any church that has South in the title has roots in defending slavery. Uh, RIP to the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Yeah. It only took us 100 years to reunite after that. And we still did it, by the way. The Methodist Church, the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South split in the 1840s about slavery and then only came back together in the 1930s when they agreed to continue segregating Black Methodists out of their thing. So even when we brought it back together, we the only thing we could agree on is racism. And that's what they don't teach you in confirmation class. But uh, to... <laughs> To the SBC's credit, in 1995, they did issue a formal apology uh, for, I think the wording was systemic racism. I'd have to look up the resolution. Anyway, that's mentioned in this New York Times article. That's kind of a breakdown of what happened at the convention. I do want to point out that that drill tweet is in effect. Sorry, I'm looking it up to not misquote. Our Lord and Savior. You got to quote drill correctly. That's true. Yeah, it's it's all the cadence is all a part of the flow. 
Issuing correction on a previous post of mine regarding the terror group ISIL. You do not, under any circumstances, got to hand it to them. So that also applies to the SBC. <laughs> yeah. That is in full effect on the pod. You do not, under any circumstances, got to hand it to them. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so why don't you tell us what happened? Right. So um, just so this convention happened. They had had their like annual meeting in Nashville this past week. And there were a couple of big issues going into it. Um, One of them is that they were trying to elect a new president because the old one, J.D. Greer, I guess, I don't know if they have term limits. Either way, he was not running for re-election. And Al Mohler Jr., who was the um, president of, I believe, Southern... Southern Baptist Theological Seminary was kind of a front runner. And yeah. then he got he got ousted pretty early in the process. And so they elected uh, let's see, Ed Litton, who was a moderate for the SBC pastor. And that was a big upset because it was between him and an ultra conservative pastor from Georgia named Mike Stone. So that was like are you, do, you, do you have Mike thoughts? Stone? No, just like I, just the mental image that comes up with each of these people is incredible for me. But before we get into it, I've yeah you know, I've seen a bunch of articles that are like, oh, Ed Litton is a is a blow to the far right in the SBC. Can we establish what like a moderate SBC pastor still believes in quickly? Yeah, I mean, like I so. I was actually trying to look this up. And the thing about Ed Litton is that he has also kind of managed to remain publicly quiet on a lot of like hot button issues. I mean, but like if you're in the Southern Baptist Convention, you're extremely pro-life in a way that is detrimental to women. <laughs> like you want, like you want Roe v. Wade overturned, kind of no matter where you are in the SBC, you know, you're extremely anti-LGBT, you're Complementarian view of gender. Yeah, like you're against women in ministry. Like in most SBC churches, women can't even teach teenage boys. Like once a boy turns 13, they can no longer be in a Sunday school class taught by a woman. Am I missing anything else? I mean, the racism is there, but like that seems understood (laughs) given what we talked about earlier. Yeah, so just in the uh, effort of pointing out how insane the SPC is in this day and time. A person who like basically still hates every marginalized group in the United States is considered a moderate in, the, in their denomination right now. Yeah, well, that's what... So the, the presidential election uh, for the SBC president is, is only like one prong of like the controversy that happened at this at their annual conference or whatever it's called. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> whatever it's called, their conference. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, it's really only like one prong of the controversy, but the kicker on the New York Times piece I found like really interesting because there's this thing called the Conservative Baptist Network, which is like the driving force behind the ultra conservative uh, movement in the Southern Baptist Convention. And they had like uh, some sort of prayer meeting breakfast after the presidential election where their candidate was not elected. by And and uh, the ultra-conservative Mike Stone also only lost by like 4% of the votes. So it was super contested. And at their prayer breakfast the next morning, 
Rod Martin, who's like a member of the executive committee of the Conservative Baptist Network, uh, said, if we do not prevail today, we will come back next year and the next year and the next year. We are here to the death. We will not stop. And like pointed out that most of Jesus's apostles were eventually martyred. So like, <laughs> like this, it's actually, it's kind of, I mean, it's concerning, but it's also super fascinating to me that even within the SBC, which I would not see as having a ton of theological diversity, there is like a wing of the church that is like sees sees themselves as like on a holy war, like willing to be martyred for the cause of like not allowing critical race theory in schools or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the SBC has jumped on the critical race theory thing because it's become this new sort of cultural lingo that a lot of state legislatures all over the South have been like banning the teaching of critical race theory. Here in Tennessee, Bill Lee just signed into law this provision that teachers can't talk about white privilege in public schools. Um, you can't teach about racism and you can't talk about critical race theory. The interesting thing about critical, like the conspiracy against critical race theory, and I think this is some helpful inside baseball. Whenever this crap happens, there's always sort of one um, group or person pushing it onto all of these different conservative groups. And I'm not saying that this doesn't happen in in um, kind of more democratic circles. I, I think it probably does. But like, so a few years back, when all these Christian colleges were filing lawsuits about religious freedom, it's because a couple of law firms were like, this is going to be a lucrative thing for us. So let's invite them to all join these suits. Well, there's one guy who has been writing all of this stuff about critical race theory and especially influencing the church about it. And ironically enough, he's an atheist. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> His name is James Lindsay. And he is... Uh, he's an atheist and... Former massage therapist, which is extremely creepy. Yeah, I mean, nothing against massage therapists because it's like a hard job, but also I don't know that it like um, prepares you to speak <laughs> critical race theory, which is just like, I mean, like at its heart, critical race theory is like an, a lens that you can use in academia to to talk about systemic racism. Anything that's like happening on a in a social studies class in like ninth grade is not critical race theory, which I think is an important point to make. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it 100%. It's um, a really, really important thing to point out is that this is like, I mean, a pretty common thing that conservatives do where they try to take this sort of obscure academic thing and make out like, it's this extremely mainstream thing. Like half the people who are hearing to discussion of critical race theory have never heard that term before have never encountered like you know discussions of it in its proper setting before most likely i've just you know it it's it's effective because it's like a total boogeyman oh critical race theory like all these things are things that you know most white people are like criticism i hate that race don't see it theory fuck College is dumb. Like it's just theory sounds like evolution. <laughs> theory sounds like evolution. Thank you. Yes, CJ. Perfect. Like they're just immediately like 
I don't want any part of this. So they, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is because, you know, just like communism during the Cold War, it's like just a, a signifier. Yes. Well, actually, so during this meeting, the Southern Baptist Convention actually adopted a uh, a resolution, or I think they affirmed an earlier resolution that basically that faith, faithful Baptists can uh, use critical race theory, like as long as the theory that they are engaging in believes that racial discrimination is rooted in sin. So they they that's like a. They affirmed that. They were like, you can use critical race theory, which I find fascinating. I, the cognitive dissonance there is actually something that's kind of fascinating to me because uh, they're like, actually, racial discrimination is rooted in sin. Uh, but we don't have to talk about that anymore because we apologized for it in 1995. And there it is. You know, there's the, uh, there's the sort of kicker with apologies like that. But, you know, I, I think that on the other side of all this in the SBC is the reality that they're also dealing with their own sex abuse scandal and yes. whether or not there will be accountability for that, how to deal with the fact that just like in the Catholic Church, there have been attempts to silence victims, to silence whistleblowers. And so at a time when there are legitimate, like legitimate harm being done by churches and people are calling attention to it, even from within the Southern Baptist Convention, they need a boogeyman to sort of mis, you know, misdirect people. But to the credit, no, I'm not going to do it. The convention... <laughs> you don't have to hand it to them. You don't have to hand it to them. And when the convention started this week, there have been... Basically, the delegates there have been voting against increasing the executive committee's budget, and all of this other stuff to roadblock them until they agree to some form of accountability about the sex abuse crisis. So that's, I won't hand it to them, but I'm genuinely shocked. Yeah. That there are people taking that seriously. Yes. Well, that's so one, one side of the drama at the convention was the presidential election. And then I would say the other prong of like drama discussion is their reaction to all of these revelations of sexual abuse by pastors. And uh, there's like one person who's mentioned in the New York Times article. So I, I mean, I guess it's okay to use her name, but Hannah Kate Williams, who has been really vocal about her abuse by a Southern Baptist pastor. And she and several, like she and lots of other survivors were protesting the convention and had like a really tense interaction with Mike Stone, who eventually lost the presidential election. And like, I'm, I saw a tweet from Hannah Kate. Uh, she said that Mike Stone called her a whore. Uh, he tweeted that at no time was I unkind in their interaction. So he probably just said, bless your heart after that, after yeah. calling her a whore. It's just, I mean, like, obviously I like believe survivors, but I'm also like way more willing to believe someone who has like no power in this situation versus Mike Stone, who was like trying to win a presidential election, you know? I will say that there has been some surprising moves on the Southern Baptist Convention's part in regards to sexual abuse. Um, I don't think that they were like strong enough. And obviously, I think a lot of people actually think they've already gone too far. But they did vote to... They, they voted basically to say that if sexual abuse is discovered, if, if someone... If a pastor is 
found to be like credibly accused of sexual abuse, then he is excluded from the pastorate, which was not the case before. You could just go to another church. And I don't think that goes far enough, if only because like credibly accused is such a, I mean, it's such a slippery thing. Like there's, there's always going to be a way to um, undo, to, to discredit survivors and to say that like, oh, well, it was just allegations, but he says he didn't do anything wrong. And so I don't think it goes far enough, but I'm honestly surprised that the motion passed. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, Yeah, me too. Somehow the Southern Baptist managed to do something the Catholic Church has never done. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ, Catholics, get your shit together. Yeah. Um, well, I, w- I will say that's probably also in part because the laity is involved in the voting process in the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, excellent point. I mean, you know, all of this, all of this also revolves around the recent exit of Russell Moore as the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I've seen a lot of people. First of all, the roles in the Southern Baptist Convention are just as as confusing as any other denomination because I thought Russell Moore was actually the president of the whole thing. But no, he's just the president of this one committee. And, you know, he he never vote like he spoke out against Trump during the presidential election and during his tenure. And a lot of people gave him credit for that or whatever. And now part of the reason why he stepped away recently is also because of you know racism he's seen within the executive committee, the attempts by the executive committee to sort of investigate him and the and the kind of lobbying arm of the SBC, which is what he was in charge of, and what they were doing on grounds of like being too liberal or whatever else. Like he stepped away and is now the minister in residence at an Acts 29 church in Nashville. Oh my God, is he really? <laughs> yeah. And I read a quote about it today saying that from the pastor at Acts 29, it was like, this isn't so much about what Russell can bring to us, but what we can offer him, which is a, a gospel-centered home for his incredible work as he makes an impact on our nation. So I was just like, man, I wish someone would let me fall back into like a cushy paycheck while expecting me to do absolutely nothing for them. Oh my goodness. I didn't know that last bit about the X-29 network. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Famous home of Mark Driscoll, although I think they have cut ties now. Yeah. So, I mean, it, why are we talking about this? I mean, it's just another connection and a narrative that's long been going on the pod about how the political movements, the, the uh, rise of the Trump group, the Tea Party, all of that, how that's expressed in Protestant denominations. It's another clear tie that their agendas are the same and they want to create dividing lines along those same, along these same issues. But also we've seen it, this is also playing out in, in some Methodist spaces. But CJ, what is, do you want to add anything there about why we're talking about this before we get to the Methodists? Well, I, I mean, obviously I'd love to talk about the Methodists. Um, I also think that like, uh, you know, like far left groups or like it just kind of on the left generally, there's this sense like, oh, we eat our own, like that we're obsessed with ideological purity and we're canceling people left and right. But um, I mean, I think you can see those dynamics play out in the Southern Baptist Convention right now, which is that there's a huge contingency of the church for whom like you cannot be ideologically pure enough. Like you're going to have to continue to get farther and farther right. And 
this is an enormous denomination. So I think it's important to talk about that. Like, I mean, it's already a moderate Southern Baptist is already so far to the right that we, I would have a hard time just like having a common theological conversation because of like our different approaches to the Bible. But if the trend continues, then like we will have this enormous denomination with like huge numbers of Americans being discipled into a faith that is like so far to the right that it will actually become very concerning. So that's also why we're talking about this, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Your racist uncle is in the at, that you don't want to talk to at holidays is an example of like a centrist in the SBC. <laughs> and I'm not. I don't. I mean, I have family members in the SBC. I'm sure they don't listen to this podcast. So, but like, I'm not trying to insult people who like are centrists in the SBC. But it is like I'm not trying to be a boogeyman here. Of like, uh, they're all gonna they're all they're all gonna become the alt right. But really, like, they kind of already have. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that the idea that, you know, part of like the other sort of more important policy arm, despite these cultural pieces like condemning the discussion of systemic race or banning the discussion of systemic racism in public institutions, like, okay, well, they didn't have those laws when I was a kid and I was still taught in school that the Civil War is about states' rights. So in some ways, like, that's not making this dramatic change. It's not like, you know, it, it's not, I'm just trying to say it, it's not like the uh, on the ground reality was that great to begin with there. But it's also a part of this bigger movement that when you, you know, that tries to bring a wave of omnibus bills that also include shit like it's okay for you to run over protesters and protesting is a felony and all of these new places and basically criminalizing the right to protest and freedom of speech for people on the left. So these all come together. It's a cultural game in order to get support for these more uh, specific things. So, you know, when you see protesters in the South or even in the North, like just last week, a, a woman was killed at a protest in Minneapolis by a person who drove through a group of protesters at 70 miles per hour. So, like, this cultural work also creates violence. You know, it's such a simple thing to say, but bad theology kills. And we're at a moment where white supremacist violence is at like a recently modern high. And this is how they continue it when they're out of power through this sort of grievance culture and through this kind of scaremongering about CRT and communism and Black Lives Matter and shit like that. Yeah. And I mean like it's also not I mean white supremacist white supremacy is like through all levels of society, but it's also like an like an anti-labor, mm. a lot of anti-labor work, like violence happens because of because of bills like that. Like there's a there's a minor strike going on in North Alabama right now, and like members of the UMWA or the United Mine Workers of America, you know, are reporting like they're coming, they're going to the hospital, like the the miners the the owners of the mine and people who work for the mine are like hitting them with their cars and breaking their legs and like sending them to the hospital. And like, it's a matter of time before someone is killed by this. And, you know, I mean, I think that like the, the conservative response to that is like, well, why don't they just follow the rules or why don't right. they want to work? And like that, 
that is tied into a lot of the theology of work and the theology of labor that is implicit in a lot of Southern Baptist and other conservative um, evangelical the teachings. So anyway. Shout out Dave Ramsey. Well, I would also connect that to the bullshit, the bullshit that we've seen about conservatives and and fast food joints massively inflating this narrative around the amount of people on unemployment and how they can't get anybody to take their minimum wage jobs. You know, the people don't want to work. Uh, if you demand better conditions for yourself and for your family, you're like well, you're just a, a lazy piece of shit, basically. And um, you're a freeloader. You're living on handouts. Well, it's just a like call back to the welf- welfare queen sort of take from the 1980s, from the Reagan era. But you know, the other thing about it is that the people that that's being pitched to are largely retired boomers who have basically a vast majority of the nation's wealth. <laughs> um, and so I think, it, you know, this is how... I don't I don't know. I could say so many things about boomers. But basically this is how like the church takes part in their continued radicalization cuz let's be honest about who's at these events and voting for this stuff. And so I think that when we, you know the the fight in the UMC and and in the SPC this week is a fight playing out in a generation that's in the last stage of its Hopefully, the last stage of its cultural dominance in the United States. But still, it's like these aren't 30 year olds arguing with each other on the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention or the annual conference of the United Methodist Church. It's your grandparents and/or your older aunt and uncle. So, yeah, I just think there's an interesting cultural location there. And before we move on to the Methodist, I do want to point out. So I'm leaving my job in a few weeks uh, to go to divinity school. So it's fine if I talk about it now, I guess. But uh, I work in an office that does that handles the elections uh, for the church I work for. And so like, no, I know a lot about the process of how elections get done in my denomination. And like the Southern Baptist Convention like puts paper slips in a bucket and then counts them. And all <laughs> me and my coworkers were aghast. We were like, this is how they do elections. It was crazy. Wow. They are um, operating in both a 19th century mode of racism and a 19th century <laughs> mode of voting. Hell yeah. Hanging chads could like totally fuck up the next SPC. <laughs> Not even. I mean, anyway. So, but let's get into the UMC of it all. Oh, the UMC of it all. So, basically, the first place that I heard about some of this racism stuff kind of rearing its head. And it, okay, let me back up for one like 10,000 sort of foot, 10,000 foot level view, really quick. The SPC is happening right now. The Southern Baptist Convention meeting is happening right now. Basically, all major denominations in the, in the United States have like national or global gatherings in the summer. So all of this is happening around the same time because that's just when it happens. And a lot um, of them were postponed. Like a lot of them didn't weren't supposed to happen at the same time, but then the pandemic happened and they had to postpone them. Yeah, that was also a factor. We haven't even gotten into the Catholics who are currently debating or have already decided whether or not Joe Biden's going to receive communion. Oh, I didn't realize that was on the table. I don't really have eyes on what's happening with Catholics. That's also being discussed by the College of Bishops this week because of his support for abortion. So go ahead and tag that on your bulletin board of all the other prongs of this crap and how it plays out in the church. 
the idea of like any priest denying Joe Biden communion though, like is absolutely hilarious to me. I hope it gets caught on film. Well, it already happened once. Did it? Yeah, it was um it was a while ago, but I just I remember seeing it go the rounds on Twitter because then there was like eight billion rounds of Eucharist discourse that day. <laughs> oh God. Oh God. We're not gonna go there. No, we're not. But, but uh I can just imagine like Joe Biden like looking at a priest being like, Hey Mac, <laughs> give me that, give me that body of Christ. <laughs> anyway, um give me the blood of Jesus, Cracker Jack. You know, that once I met this bad dude named Corn Pop, he tried to deny me at the Lord's table. Corn Pop lives rent-free in my head. Like the definition of that phrase. Also lives rent-free in Joe Biden's head because it's just a bag of worms at this point. Anyway, um, I just got totally derailed by that. Sorry. <laughs> we were going to talk about the United Methodist connection. Yeah, I was saying that like this is all happening at the same time for a reason. But apparently in the Florida Annual Conference, you know, you, one of the most annoying parts about Annual Conference is that people from the floor can bring resolutions that are absolutely meaningless for the conference to vote on. But they're always the most controversial shit going on at any particular time. And they always like get everybody up in everybody's like blood up so that they can argue with each other. But basically, it doesn't mean anything other than the annual conference has like passed this thing. So there were some resolutions about anti racism and also supporting like non binary people in the annual conference. And, and this was in Florida. This was in Florida. Yeah. How big how big is the conference of Florida? I think it's either the biggest or the second biggest annual conference in the entire United Methodist Church. Is it is it the entire state? No, it doesn't include the panhandle. Okay. Like I think it stops at Tallahassee because that's a part of South Alabama, West Florida. But I it is one of the biggest annual conferences in all of Methodism. Okay. So it it holds like doesn't hold any extra power, but it is like a big concentration of them. But I'm going to read just a little bit from the Wesley Wesley Covenant Association Florida Annual Conference chapter page, uh, soon to be Global Methodist Church page. If you're digging back through our episode history in our mind, the WCA is the precursor to the recently announced GMC. So um, this is by the Reverend Mike Hudson. May as well name names the secretary of the WCA in Florida. The first day of the virtual Florida conference has come to an end. Bishop Carter reminded us that we are a big tent, but unfortunately, today showed why so many of us are looking forward with hope to the Global Methodist Church. (laughs) Two resolutions in particular demonstrated why it is time to leave the UMC. Our conference lay leader presented the resolution option for co-lay leader structure. She announced that she would be presenting... Derek Scott to serve as her co-lay leader, while Alice and Derek are gifted individuals, both are open members of the LGBTQ community. None of the lay leaders representing the laity of the Florida Conference represent those of our laity who hold traditional views of marriage and sexuality. So first of all, Mike's trying to tell us that he doesn't feel represented. Oh my God. (laughs) Because the two people who do represent lay people don't have sex the way he does. Oh, damn. Uh, 
after that resolution passed, the non-binary gender resolution was presented to the session. And I just want to like highlight this entire paragraph because it's hilarious how like confused and upset he is by even the idea of non-binary. My goodness. This resolution adds a non-binary column to the membership gender section of the statistical tables to allow the reporting of members who do not identify as male or female beginning with the 2021 statistical report. While this resolution only passed by 24 votes, it represents a shift in our conference. We no longer hold a scriptural view of gender. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just like, we no longer hold a scriptural view of gender and lightning strike. Da, da, da. Genesis 1.27 clearly states, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What orthodox biblical belief will we disregard in the name of tolerance? Oh, there it is. So it's just, it's hitting all the like typical dog whistles in that the guy clearly has no clue what gender is as opposed to like biological sex. And then on top of that, he's just saying the quiet part loud. What do we like? What will we throw out in the name of tolerance? Even tolerating non binary people is too much for this asshole. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's what's so insidious about the WCA is like that they are praying for a split and that so many of them really do just want to like take their ball and go home. Like they, they think that it's their game and that they can decide how we play the rules. But I mean, I think what's so insidious is that I don't, Obviously, I'm not in the Methodist church anymore, but I was, you know, for like 23 years. And I don't know any gay Methodists who are praying for a split. Like, I know a lot of gay Methodists who would simply like to be able to get married in our church. And if someone doesn't want to perform that marriage for them, they don't have to. But the WCA is like literally can't abide the idea of a non binary person like coming into their sanctuary. And it's, I mean, like that's evil. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to go too far, but that is evil. Uh, yeah, you're edging your bets way too much. I think that's like the least you can say. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, it it just goes to show. I mean, but on the other side of this, the sad part is, is that it's there's also a sort of performative aspect to this because it's not like because of the way the United Methodist Church is because of people like this guy maybe like 0.001% of the people in that annual conference are probably identified as non-binary because they know that they're not welcome. So yeah. like, in some ways, it's also like, hey, this is totally performative. And I get that it's like, you know, a tiny inch of progress, but it also like, wouldn't it be better to just spend all of that energy actually making the change and like getting us to a point where we can stop debating this crap and then just like change the structure to include all of this? I don't know if you have a take on this CJ. I mean, it's just like, okay, well, to me, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing. Like, are is a non-binary person suddenly going to like join the Methodist church because of this? Or are like any LGBT people who are waiting to like genuinely try to take up a place in the United Methodist church waiting for a, a decision on LGBTQ marriage and ordination? Like, to me, it's kind of like, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Um, I don't. I don't think I fully understand what you're saying um so so you're saying that like like there aren't lgbt people left who like care about this particular decision or no i'm saying that it doesn't like 
I think so often annual conferences, I guess I'm comparing this in a little bit to the resolution thing. Like it's a largely symbolic gesture that without a deeper transformation doesn't really accomplish anything. And so I think it can end up doing more to kind of like placate and almost pacify allies than it does to actually like open up doors for LGBT people to have a bigger place in the church. Yeah. I mean, I think that's I think that's fair. I guess I don't fully understand what the resolution in Florida would be doing. Like it would just change the um it would just change like how they count, right? So you 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 can register as non-binary instead of just male and female. Like in the conference journal that has all of the like statistics for every church. Not not even about like your local church could already do this. If you have a large population of non-binary people or even one person who's non-binary, you could all you could already like put them in your records as non-binary. But now this is just saying the annual conference's statistical table will add another column where that person at your church would get counted in the annual conference thing as non-binary in, oh. in the journal. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, I guess I'm not really like an incrementalist <laughs> that I don't, like, I don't generally think like, oh, we just got to stack small changes on top of each other because that's like not what the history of like labor and civil rights victories like shows us is how you win. But I mean, that does seem like it would be important. I don't know. Does the importance of that like outweigh the opportunity it gave the WCA to be like performatively hateful to like all LGBT people? You know, because now it's like they made that announcement and now the conversation is like, okay, do we have to explain to you like why Genesis 127 is not um, like a medical prescription? Like, do we have to explain to you like why? Like non-binary, non-binary people can exist in the uh, the in the world of Genesis 127. Like that's the conversation, right? Instead of like instead of welcoming non-binary people, which is what yeah. we should be doing anyway. Well, and that's that's I think a good way to put the point I'm trying to make is because ultimately what happens is then there's a discussion on the floor of the annual conference about the dignity and and like humanity of non-binary people. Cause it because then anytime a resolution is brought up, it's brought up for debate. So, you know, to me, it's like, okay, well, we can do this now while the GMC people are going to sit there and be like, Genesis 127, or you could do it after the general conference when they're gone. Oh, yeah. And then just have it be like a celebration of like, hey, this is how we're letting LGBT people transform our, our church. Okay. Now I understand the point you're trying to make. And I believe I agree. Yeah. We got there together. Cool. But I okay, so I just want to go into one more little bit of this and then and then I'm probably ready for a fight corner. But as any time that okay, so this guy's just said, what other orthodox biblical belief will we disregard in the name of tolerance? And then immediately after, for clarity's sake, the WCA and the Global Methodist Church believe all people are created in the image of God and are of sacred worth. We love everyone. We also love the Word of God and believe that it is the rule for faith and practice. And while human sexuality is where the battle has been fought for so long, here it comes. The real issue is the authority of Scripture. Oh my God. Do you not believe we can disregard portions of the Bible that the ever-shifting culture finds unacceptable? I mean, I mean the Book of Discipline 
is does not say that the Bible is inerrant. The the Book of Discipline says that the Bible is an infallible text, but not inerrant. Like it's not the literal word of God. Methodists don't believe that. Sorry, this is one of my soapboxes. I think. Well, I think the the thing though is that he's saying basically there is no room in that text for an interpretation that includes non-binary people. So anything that like he doesn't agree with is just a rejection of the text. But also we know that this is the long sort of defense mechanism of conservatives to keep them from being held accountable for the actual material consequences of their beliefs, which is marginalization and criminalization of LGBT people. And even, you know, from homelessness to suicide, like they don't ever want to be actually called homophobic or racist or whatever else. So they always deflect by saying, well, it's really not even about that. It's about scripture. And are you really going to like bash me for like, you know, just loving the Bible? And the answer is yes, I will. But um, and I mean, the SBC just, just did the exact same thing with CRT. The problem is that it's about the authority of scripture. I mean, it's really frustrating because like, I mean, I am one LGBT person who loves scripture and like knows a lot about it. I didn't take a biblical Hebrew because I like wanted to shake my faith to the core. I took it because I wanted to know more about the freaking Bible. And I mean, like I, and I personally find like the language of Genesis and the the language of the uh, Hebrew Bible to be like a really interesting reflection of gender. I mean, like if you're reading it in the original Hebrew, like there are names for God where God, like it's not a male or a female ending for God. It's a, a multiple, it's like a, like a plural ending because of like the structure, because of the structures of the Hebrew language, even though like the thing that, um, well, Jews still repeat this, but like, like the ancient Israelites would like put this on their doors and stuff is like the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So it's like, it's one God, but referred to like in multiple endings. And I found that like a really expansive, like to find God, like God, God's self referred to and like uh, referred to with a plural ending, which is almost like being referred to with a plural pronoun. When I was like reckoning with my own gender, I found that so, I found that I found such a loving reflection of my gender in God, God's self, like in the Godhead. And like saying that I, that I don't take the Bible seriously or that I'm like seriously misinterpreting the text when I learned biblical Hebrew <laughs> to learn more about the text is like so it's so insulting. Like I don't I almost don't even care about the homophobia in this moment where I'm like, excuse me, like you're insulting my intellect. You're insulting my like biblical interpretation. Sorry, this is my soapbox. No, it's fine. We we may already be in the fight corner. I woke up and found ourselves fighting. <laughs> you you put me there. You put me in the fight corner. I just, just I I just I I understand why conservatives say it, but I find a lot of the arguments by conservatives to be like really intellectually lacking because they aren't willing to engage with you on actual issues around the text, right? Because they have their interpretation and they don't care what you say in response to it. And it's well, like, well, then why are we having this conversation? You know? Well, I think that's that's part of the reality. Stop debating them, like not saying this to you, but to listeners, like stop debating them because there is no deeper intellectual foundation or grounding to these arguments. Like it's all about grievance. It's all about 
the material consequences of these beliefs. And it has nothing to do with the substance of scripture. A great ref a great reference for people who want to go deeper into what CJ was just talking about in Genesis. There's an awesome book by Phyllis Tribble, Hebrew biblical scholar called God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality that talks about basically like the first three chapters of Genesis in insane detail. And just her reading of the complexities of the Hebrew text in Genesis 3 are it just it's just a great book. So check that out. Find it on Kindle. I'm sure you can find a PDF somewhere. And last, if you're oh sorry, yeah, go, no. well if and if you're new to um like an expansive view of gender in the Bible, there's a, a, a really good introductory book called Transforming by Austin Hartke, who is a trans man who wrote an entire basically like a primer on transgender people in the Bible and it's really good and it's really short. So well, that's probably a little more accessible than Phyllis Tribble's pretty dense academic text of biblical criticism. So <laughs> Pick your poison. (laughs) Okay. And then finally, the other piece of this that I want to read just very quickly is that they're also the next day going to debate a resolution about racism. And this guy writes, Tomorrow it appears the UMC will give up the dream of Martin Luther King Jr. as it declares an entire group of people racist because of the color of their skin. My God. (laughs) And then it says... um, Instead of casting a vision and living into Colossians 3.11, here there is no Gentile, Jew, blah, blah, blah. We will be treated to an ideology that wants to punish people today for the sins of their fathers. I mean, so it's I'm so. i sorry, like, let's play that out. What else does the rest of that verse say? There's no Gentile or Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. <laughs> Get fucked, my dude. Like, no, it doesn't say that in Colossians, unfortunately. Oh, wait, does it say... Where does it, it say says that? Scythians. That's in um, Galatians. Ah, I get them confused all the time. Well, my it says, bad. I still um, say get fucked. I stand by get fucked, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> say it. I mean, it's there. But it's, I mean, like, it, that gives up the game, right? Like, he's going to use, like, Martin Luther King, a, a man who was assassinated for <laughs> fighting for civil rights, <laughs> to be like, actually, you can't call me a racist. Well, but also, he's making this is a CRT thing to an ideology that. This is hilarious. Wants to punish people today for the sins of their fathers. Like they just don't. Again, this is why you don't even like bother arguing with them about it because they absolutely believe we should be punished for the sins of our fathers. <laughs> That's what Christianity believes that we are culpable for generational sin. Yeah, I mean it's, that's literally biblical. <laughs> yeah, that's biblical. It's, I mean, that's like less debatable. Than his bullshit about Genesis one twenty seven. Like, what does he think? How, how does he think that story ends with all having died in Adam? <laughs> anyway, so it's just and and to be clear, we don't think that you're responsible for the sins of your fathers because there is freedom in Jesus. But you know, we're <laughs> we're playing out this argument as it goes. Right, but I think that you know. Anyway, so he goes on to say, if this if these shifts alarm you, consider this. Where do you expect? the church to go when a large number of traditionalist pastors leave the post-separation UMC to join the global Methodist church, (laughs) probably to a much happier place, my my dude. It's also, I just, you know, there, there's no denomination that had this, a schism like this where like the denominations afterwards thrived, you know, like the church, churches die, they, they lose property, they can't pay their taxes and their parishioners go to the large non-denom down the street. 
I mean, is the is the reality. So, you know, it's a like they're playing play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Like they're playing ideological games now and they're going to win the closing of a bunch of Methodist churches of all stripes. Well, and ultimately though, like to bring it back to like the boomers, they don't care. Like many of them would rather see the UMC die than see a change. And they genuinely don't give a shit about like what's left for the next generation. So yeah, I mean, it's a fire sale and it's the end of like their cultural world and they feel fine about it because they're not going to be alive for the for the consequences of the fallout. So yeah, so we're all we going had, down. Yeah. What an incredibly uplifting episode when, when it's just CJ and Isaac. Yeah, well, at least we didn't talk about how we're like afraid of Twitter. No. Love you, Brian. Um, should we head to the fight corner? Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't have a fight corner today, but you did. So I'm opening up the fight corner to Isaac. I actually have two. Oh my gosh. I know. I've dual wielding. <laughs> dual wielding. <laughs> One is a sports fight corner, and we're gonna start there. Steve Jabby refs expert and correspondent for ESPN during NBA broadcasts. Welcome to the fight corner. <laughs> First of all, I hate seeing your stupid face. You're a really ugly person. But secondly, Steve Javi gets called in to uh, whenever there's like a review of a play in the NBA, which again, we've already complained about instant replay killing sports on this in this fight corner, I think. But anytime there's a review of a play in the NBA, they bring in Steve Javi to talk about what the ruling is going to be or what the rules are. And surprise, surprise, every single time, he sides with the refs. Like whatever <laughs> call that they made was the right call. And it's like gotten to a point where Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson like start yelling at him because he will not like his like loyalty to the refs it's just so absolute that in a in a playoff game last week, Kawhi Leonard, there was an inbounds of the ball. He jumped back across the half line to catch the ball, which is a backward violation. And Javi came on and he was like, well, in the final two minutes, the rule says and that you, if your momentum takes you across the line, it's not a backcourt violation. And Jeff Van Gundy was like... That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like they started like yelling at him. But I mean it, the point of all this is to say Steve Javi, you are a cop. Yeah, refs it is the cops. official position of this pod that refs are cops. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> You're a cop and your job is to come on national television and defend qualified immunity every single night. So, uh, ACAB, quit your job. And then my second one is Chris Tomlin. Welcome to the Fight Corner. Is this Chris Tomlin, the musician? Yes, the musician. Yes. Okay. I'm ready for this. The extremely popular, like, godfather of CCM in many ways. Chris Tomlin, very, very small, small person, very short. Oh, is he really? Yeah. How tall is he? Would he be intimidated by my height? Yes. That's exciting. I've actually met him and he's five foot six. Oh my goodness. Five six dude. I have never met a five six dude who who didn't comment on my height. That's just a, <laughs> it's like the first thing out of their mouths. Hell yeah. 
Chris Tomlin, I'm going to say that, you know, you wrote a couple of things that are good. Like, How Great Is Our God? That's a good song made infinitely better by Chance the Rapper on on his mixtape. But recently, you released an album that has just gone too, too far. Like, you've hung around way too long, my man. Like, you're practically bald at this point and you're still trying to be cool in the CCM scene. But now you release this album, Chris Tomlin and Friends, where you write CCM songs with Florida Georgia Line. What? Yes. <laughs> Florida Georgia Line, for those who don't know, the bane of country music, the absolute like worst cultural product of the South. The, the apotheosis of rap country. Yes, 100%. Like Kid Rock taken to a fucking frat house. Like, everything that's wrong with white people is summed up in Florida Georgia line. And now Chris Tomlin has brought them into his, his orbit. And that means that he's brought them into the church, which probably evangelical churches that are going to play these songs, you absolutely deserve it. But like, to me, when I saw this, it was just so upsetting. <laughs> I have nothing at stake other than just being like Jesus Christ. Like even here, we have to suffer. That is that's viscerally upsetting. I mean, that is truly like my college worlds colliding. Like the now the music that I heard at a frat party can also be the music I heard at church on Sunday. Like Nelly, you are you already betrayed every every person who was in high school when you released Hot In Here by doing a song with Florida Georgia Line and now even Chris Tomlin has taken these motherfuckers to church. Wow. I will also fight Chris Tomlin for this and I will win because he is 5'6". <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I would fight him, but I won't be able to see him because <laughs> I'm almost a foot taller than he is. So meet us in the Chili's parking lot, Chris Tomlin... Because you collaborated with Florida Georgia Line, which is... We, we won't even make you go to DFW. You can meet us in the East Tennessee Chili's. <laughs> That's right. Because there's probably going to be a Florida Georgia Line concert here sometime in the next few months. <sighs> well, we don't have... Do, we, do you have anything to plug? Uh, I would just plug that Phyllis Tribble book, The Rhetoric of Sexuality. I think you can still order copies. I recently had an essay drop in Earth and Altar, their very first volume, if you're interested in reading my thoughts about Mary, Marilyn Robinson and being gay, then order a copy of Earth and Altar. Currently, the essay is only in the print version. It's not online yet. Okay, I'm sorry. But just the first lines of this song, I just pulled it up. Thank you, Lord. The, the title of the first collab is called Thank You, Lord. And the first line is one of the Florida Georgia Line people saying, thank you, Lord, for the small things like me and her on a porch swing. So yeah, anyway. Oh, that's, that's kind of sweet. No. <laughs> <laughs> All of my takes have been revealed. I think that was kind of sweet. CJ's going to be like, hey, this isn't bad. <laughs> when you listen to it later. That's what's going to get me canceled. It could, it could. I mean, you are like, you do live in Texas. There's a weakness in you that could be open to Florida Georgia Line. Well, also Florida Georgia Line's um, peak, like, Number one hit, Cruise, came out when I was like 20 years old. I was in college. I was just like at the peak age for Florida Georgia Line. Mm. Mm. 
Well, truly all takes have been revealed. Shout out, Brian. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Yeah. And also be on the lookout for uh, potential mailbag episodes coming in the future. Had some people ask and we are going to debate about how to do that. But I think it's coming your way. So start formulating your, your questions, listeners. <laughs>